I want to start this morning with a pop quiz. Get your brains working. Hopefully this won't be too hard. For those of you uh, kids who have been working through your catechism questions on the Ten Commandments, I'm going to need your help. So if you know the answer, shout the answer out loud, okay? You ready? Question one, what do the first four commandments teach? Our duty to God. Okay, good. Second question, what do the last six commandments teach? Yeah, our duty to our fellow man. Good. So, how can we summarize then the Ten Commandments? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the summary of the Ten Commandments. That is the summary of all of the law. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to keep going through the Ten Commandments today. Today we are looking at the Seventh Commandment. And even a casual observer who who looks at our culture can see that we are obsessed with sex. From the multi-billion dollar revenue of the pornography industry to the on-screen portrayal of the movie industry to the use of it to sell products by the advertising industry, it is everywhere. In 1997, I read a stat this week, in 1997, the average American was exposed to sexual material more than 10,000 times a year. And I can only imagine that it's increased in the last 20 plus years with social media. Now, there is no relationship on earth that, that is more intimate or that can provide fulfillment, uh, more fulfillment and joy than the marriage relationship. And so we should not be uh, surprised. We should expect the devil to attack this institution, to cause confusion, uh, corruption, and pain because God's best gifts are always the ones that the devil hits the hardest. Um, as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, we've seen uh, some principles to help us understand the, the Ten Commandments rightly. And by now, you're familiar with the two-sided coin rule and with the inside-out rule. You know the commandments are both positive and negative in scope and that they govern both our desires as well as our deeds. So the Seventh Commandment forbids adultery, extramarital sex. But it also requires us to be faithful, to pursue and nurture our marital relationship. It requires that we do everything that we can not to grow apart physically, emotionally, spiritually, but do everything we can to grow closer together in our marriage. It forbids lust, affairs of the heart, but it also requires us to be pure in our thoughts and our words and our actions. So with all that in mind, I want to summarize the message today with these two sentences. Whether you're married or single, be pure in heart, speech, and conduct, and build a great marriage by being fully passionate with your spouse and fully pure toward everyone else. We're going to try to answer three questions this morning. What is God's design for sex and marriage? What does the seventh commandment forbid? And what does it require? So first, what is God's design 
for sex and marriage. We've got to understand this if we're going to understand why adultery is wrong and why the seventh commandment is so important. A biblical view of sex begins with recognizing that it's a good gift from God. This is part of this one flesh union between a husband and a wife. It's part of the goodness of God's creation. The Bible commands and celebrates sexual intimacy in marriage, but only in marriage. God gave it to us for bonding and relational love, for pleasure, and for bearing children. And to protect the blessings of that good gift, God gives us the seventh commandment. Marriage is also one of God's good gifts. Marriage is a covenant relationship. God said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so it's an exclusive and permanent covenant relationship between one man and one woman for the duration of their lives. And adultery is a breach of that covenant commitment. Marriage is also a relationship that produces children. Only a man and a woman can be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28. The prophet Malachi says, did God not make them one, one flesh, with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, Malachi 2.15. And we can't rightly define marriage without any reference to childbearing. Now, that's not the only purpose of marriage. Sexual intimacy is not just for having kids. It's also for pleasure. The problem is, is that our culture makes sex and marriage all about pleasure. And they've disconnected it or separated it from the idea of rearing children. A marriage is the kind of union that if everything is working properly, produces children. And Malachi says it's designed to, to make disciples of the next generation, to pass faith on to the children. So an attack on the stability of the family undermines the covenant community of God's people. Third, marriage is a complementary relationship. In Genesis 2, God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. So I'm make a helper fit for him, verse 20. So God created a woman, Eve, to be his helpmeet. He did not create another man. Men and women are created equal. They have equal value, dignity, and worth as God's image bearers, but they have different yet complementary roles in marriage. This is most obvious in, in bearing children. Right? Only women can have babies. It's astonishing to me that we have to say that. Only women can have babies. But it's more than just biological complementarity. The Bible talks about our roles saying... In Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we have these roles, and as we fulfill these roles and keep this covenant Paul goes on to say that this refers to Christ and the church, Ephesians 5.32. So that means marriage is a relationship that reflects Christ and the church. 
God designed marriage to symbolize the union, the roles, and the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his bride, the church. So the husband loves, serves, and leads his wife as sacrificially as Christ does the church, and the wife submits to and respects her husband as the church submits to Christ. But that picture, that picture only works when there's a man and a woman. It is ruined if you have two men or two women. It'd be like having two Christs married to each other or two churches married to each other. That picture of the gospel is destroyed that way. The picture of the gospel is only seen when you have a husband and a wife united in a covenant with different but complementary roles. Now, I know there's a brief sketch, but once you understand God's design for sex and marriage, you can see why adultery is forbidden because it destroys the purposes for which God designed sex and marriage. We can also see that sexual immorality is anything, anything that violates God's design. So not just adultery, but fornication, homosexuality, prostitution, pornography, self-pleasure, incest, pedophilia, and on and on. Anything outside of God's design is sexual immorality. The purpose then of the seventh commandment is to protect marriage and all that God designed it to accomplish. So that leads to the second question. What does the seventh commandment forbid? What's all included in this command? You shall not commit adultery. Well, obviously it forbids adultery. What is adultery? Adultery is extramarital sex. It's when a married person is sexually intimate with someone who is not their spouse. Now, the Bible talks about the forbidden woman. Who is the forbidden woman? The forbidden woman is anyone who is not your wife. She's off limits. If you're single, you're not married, that means every woman is the forbidden woman. For women, we could say the same thing about men. Any man who is not your husband is the forbidden man. He's off limits. Doesn't matter who he is. The seventh commandment forbids adultery, but it also forbids everything that leads up to adulteries. We've been walking through these commands. God doesn't just forbid the the final act. He forbids in these commands everything leading up to the act. So the seventh commandment also forbids emotional affairs, getting too close and emotionally attached to someone who is not your spouse. An adulterous relationship does not usually start with sex. It usually begins with an emotional affair before there's a physical affair. So to prevent this, we need to keep some relational boundaries. If you're married, you should not spend time alone with a woman who is not your wife. Don't eat lunch with them alone. Don't ride in the car with them alone. Don't pray with them alone. You got to be careful how much of your heart, not to share too much of your heart with them or let them share too much of their heart with you. You should not be seeking your emotional support from another woman or, if you're a woman, from another man, be it at church or at work or in your neighborhood or online. The seventh commandment forbids flirting with someone who is not your spouse. What's the point of this? The point is to avoid stirring up physical intimacy through an emotional connection. The seventh commandment also forbids lust. 
Once again, we see Jesus teaches that true righteousness means more than just keeping the letter of the law. True righteousness includes obedience from the heart. So, so just like the command not to murder included angry thoughts and words, so the command not to commit adultery includes lustful thoughts and imagination. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lust, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus shows the intention of this command is purity in your heart. Lustful intent is more than just noticing if someone is pretty or handsome. It goes beyond that. It means to look at a, at a woman or a man with sexual desire. Adultery is a matter of the heart. So the seventh command forbids lust on the one hand, but also requires purity in your thoughts and in your desires. And it's here now that we can start, we can begin to see the depth of this command. Its intention is sexual purity in general, whether you're married or you're single. It covers any form of sexual immorality, anything that deviates from God's design of one man and one woman in marriage. So Martin Luther put it this way. He said, this commandment applies to every form of impurity, however it is called. Not only is the external act forbidden, but also every kind of cause, motive, and means. Your heart, your lips, and your whole body are to be pure and to give no encouragement to impurity. I especially like that last line, and to give no encouragement to impurity. In short, we could say it this way, we are all called to live pure and help our neighbor do the same. Not just guarding your own purity, but helping guard theirs as well. Remember that the second half of the Ten Commands are summed up in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. So every one of these commands is not just about you. This command is not just about you being pure. It is that, but it's also you helping other people to be pure as well. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, well, you should tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus is using exaggeration here to make a point. He's not saying that we should literally gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands. He's teaching us to be radical in dealing with our sin, to do whatever it takes to put sin to death and to keep our passions under control. And Jesus makes a connection here between the eyes looking and the heart lusting. We have to deal with the problem at its root. Solomon makes the same connection saying, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. You're looking at her, you see her pretty eyelashes and she captures your heart. There's a connection between looking and lusting. Do you remember the story of King David? David and Bathsheba. King David stayed home when he should have been leading his men at war. He got lazy and selfish. He abdicated his responsibility. He was idle. He was isolated, and that made him vulnerable to temptation. So we read, late one afternoon, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Now, he did more than just look at Bathsheba. He gazed at her longingly. He looked with lustful intent. 
He was fanning the flame of his desire, which led to sin. So rather than fleeing temptation, he made provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, Romans 13, 14. Now, this is a key insight for us if we want to have victory over temptation. The eye is the window of sinful desire. So Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness, Matthew 6, 22 and 23. So one way to have victory is to look away, to turn your gaze, to bounce your eyes, to, to not continue to look. And godly men who understand this truth understand that it requires us to be careful about what we look at. Godly women who understand this truth understand it requires that, but also understand that this requires modesty in how they dress. And women can be modest. You can be modest and you can still dress classy, you can still be pretty. I want to share a quote from John Stott, which I think sums it up pretty well in a couple sentences. He says, It'd be silly to legislate about fashions, but wise, I think, to ask them, that's ask women, to make this distinction. It is one thing to make yourself attractive. It is another to make yourself deliberately seductive. You girls know the difference, and so do we men. End quote. Guarding your heart requires guarding your eyes. Sinful fantasies are inflamed by undisciplined eyes. Our imagination is a beautiful gift from God. But if you, with your eyes, feed your mind with dirt, then your imagination is going to be dirty. Now, of course, this applies to whatever we watch, listen to, and even read. Movies, music, even books, like many romance novels, can cause us to lust in our mind's eye. So, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Philippians 4, 8. The seventh commandment then obviously also prohibits or forbids pornography. This is a huge problem in our culture and in the church. The pornography industry, their annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. 40 million Americans regularly consume it. 28,000 people are looking at it every second. The National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families, according to them in 2010, 47% of families in the United States, half of the families in the United States, reported that pornography is a problem in their home. 11 is the average age of first exposure. 94% of kids will be exposed by age 14. 94%. In teenagers, using pornography increases the odds of teen pregnancy, hinders healthy sexual development, and increases major depression. Pornography increases the rate of marital infidelity by more than 300%. 68% of divorces involve one party meeting their new partner online, while 56% involve one party having a, quote, obsessive interest in pornographic website. On top of the damage that it does to consumers, it also damages the producers of this content, degrading men and women in the vilest ways. Obviously, we don't want to support the industry in any way. 
But that's just not a problem out in the culture. That's a problem in the church. I'm generalizing here, and I'm going to talk more to men, but women can struggle with lust and pornography as well. So how do we overcome this? First of all, you need to get safeguards on all your devices. Covenant Eyes is great for accountability. It's got some filtering ability. Disney Circle is useful for setting limits on content and time. Get ad blockers, get other filters, get VidAngel, get ClearPlay. We love ClearPlay for your movies that you're gonna watch. Check Plugged In, Focus on the Family's website to check the content of all your media, whether it's movies, music, video games, whatever it is, so that you don't get surprised by anything and you're not caught off guard. All of these things can help you guard your eyes and therefore guard your heart. I like the way Josh McDowell puts this. He says, I'd rather put a fence on the top of the cliff than an ambulance at the bottom. Second, if you're struggling, now is the time to get help. The Conquer series online is a series of videos that has been used by several Christian ministries and churches. There's also Celebrate Recovery for Pornography. It's a biblical 12-step program that helps you overcome your habits or addictions, whatever they are. There's a local group. There are groups that meet in the area. They meet weekly. They provide accountability. They provide a sponsor to help you get freedom. Now, maybe you're listening to all that and you're like, man, that sounds intense. It sounds like a lot. But Jesus says, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Third, confess and repent. Get on your knees. Now, maybe you're afraid of the fallout if you confess your sin, but sin thrives in secret. Now's the time to confess, to repent, to turn to Christ, to find forgiveness and freedom. He wants you to be free of this sin. He does not want you to be bound to it, to be burdened with the guilt and the shame. He wants you to be pure. If you're married, he wants your marriage to flourish. As pastors, we are ready to walk this journey with you and your family. I said, man, this sounds like a lot. Jesus says, whatever it takes. The best strategy though, the best strategy for overcoming lust, pornography, or really any sexual immorality, whether you're a guy or a girl, whether you're married or unmarried, it's not merely to, to fighting to reject it. It's replacing it with a superior love, a superior joy. When I've shared this before, but I just love the story. When Jason and the Argonauts sail past the sirens, those are the women who seduce men with their song, luring them to their death. He's got a great strategy for defeating them. Now, Odysseus, he has his men tie him to the mast, but that's not Jason's strategy. Jason has Orpheus, his bard, play music on his lute. And as long as he's playing his music, his song, the men listen to his song rather than the sirens because his song is sweeter. His music was sweeter. To overcome the lure of lust, we have to sing the sweeter song. The siren call of sin no longer captivates us then. For Christians, Jesus is the sweeter song. He's our superior joy. Holiness for the Christian is not a burden. It's a joy. It's delight. We want to please him more than we want to please ourselves. So you remember the, the, the story of, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife is coming after him every day. She's trying to get him to commit adultery with her, right? 
every day, but he doesn't do it. But he didn't say, I can't do this because we might get caught. That's not what he says. He doesn't say even, we can't do this because it's wrong. What does he say? He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you understand? His relationship with God was more important and more rewarding than the pleasures of the moment. We all want Joseph's conviction and courage, but we have to first have Joseph's deep love for God. Victory over sin is not just about hating your sin. That's where we get focused so much as Christians. Yes, that's part of it. But it's not only hating sin. That's not even primarily hating sin. It's also about loving Christ, wanting to please him more than you please yourself. So the best way to gut your addiction is to grow your relationship with Jesus Christ. Accountability partners, they're not just there to tie you to the mast or stuff wax in your ears. They're your shipmates, your brothers in arms. They're singing with you. They help keep the song of Christ ringing in your ears, pointing you to Christ, your superior joy. That's their job. See, they're saying, look, his mercies are new every morning. His grace is sufficient for you. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. They keep pointing you to Christ and the word of his grace, saying, look to Christ. Of course, central to this superior joy in Jesus is Bible study and prayer. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. God's word is a sword. Learn to use it. Memorize Job 31, 1, or Matthew 5, 27 and 28, or 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. Use God's word. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To walk by the Spirit so that you don't gratify the desires of your flesh, you've got to pray. That requires prayer. Not just a little bit in the morning when you wake up and before you go to work, or a little bit before meals, but all day. All day. And especially when you're tempted. Say, man, Michael, this sounds like a lot. Now you're telling me to read the Bible and memorize all this scripture and pray all the time. Jesus says, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Is the Bible warns us of the disastrous consequences of sexual immorality. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? I was going to do this as an object lesson today. Um, but I thought, that's probably not a good idea. The Bible says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? What's the answer, church? No. No. Pornography, it, it, it denigrates women. It damages relationships. It destroys a man's ability to lead. Sexual immorality destroys marriages, it destroys families, it destroys children, it destroys your ministry. The way the Proverbs sum this up, the consequences, is, is really, you could summarize it with one word, loss. Loss. So Proverbs 5 talks about this. It talks about loss of honor, loss of years, loss of strength, loss of fortune, loss of health, loss of life, loss of community. 
It's just loss. That's the consequences. The great irony here is that when you take something that is not yours, you risk losing everything that is yours. The path of freedom is through frank confession of sin, genuine repentance, accountability, fervent prayer for God's grace to give you strength, to give you purity, to give you victory. And I want to encourage you, before we move to the last point, that forgiveness and freedom is possible. I have seen the power of God, the grace of God at work, bringing forgiveness and freedom, changing people in this area. God can renew your minds and your hearts. God can remove the filth and wash you clean but you cannot battle alone. You need to get help. You need accountability from other men, not just in avoiding the forbidden woman, but in seeking and pursuing Christ. So last question then, what does the seventh commandment require? We've seen what it forbids. To put it positively, the seventh command requires husbands and wives to do everything they can to nurture their relationship and their love for each other emotionally, spiritually, and yes, physically as well. That means serving and caring for your wife so that she feels loved, she feels cherished. And the question to ask yourself here is, what are the things that you need to do as a husband or as a wife that are gonna build into your marriage relationship? Talking, praying together, making memories, going on a date, serving each other, what are those things? Now, as it relates to the seventh commandment, one of the main ways to build into your relationship is to be intimate. You see, God's strategy for purity is twofold. Be fully pure toward other women and be fully passionate with your wife. This comes from Proverbs chapter five. It's the two parts of that chapter. We could say it like this. Fully and freely delight yourself in your spouse's love and in no one else. We stay pure not simply by suppressing our desire, but through satisfying our desire within the covenant of marriage. To stay pure and faithful in marriage, God says, be intoxicated always in your wife's love. So Proverbs 5, 15 through 19 says this, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The wife is compared here to a well of flowing water in a desert. The image is, is of a man who has a burning thirst, but it can only be quenched by the cool and refreshing water of his wife. Understand this picture, this image, is a picture of both faithfulness and fulfillment in marriage. He's commanded to rejoice in, or literally to get pleasure in, his wife alone. Let her fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Physical intimacy is God's good gift to be enjoyed, but only within marriage. And it's a protection against the forbidden woman, against sexual immorality. What this means is, is that husbands and wives, you have a responsibility in your marriage to help your spouse stay pure. 
Physical intimacy is a crucial safeguard for marital fidelity, faithfulness. God designed sexual intimacy as a powerful force for good. It's like super glue. It helps form a lasting bond between husband and wife, and so it strengthens and secures their relationship. It causes the release of oxytocin. It's the bonding hormone. That's the same hormone that's released when mothers are nursing their babies. It causes them to bond so deeply, so tightly with their children. That same hormone bonds men and women together. I learned something so cool this week. Some researchers studied the effects of oxytocin on men's brains. Check this out. Okay, they took these men who were in long-term relationships and they gave them oxytocin nasal spray and then they watched their brain activity. And when they showed them a picture of their partner, the, the part of their brain that's responsible for feelings of reward and pleasure lit up, which is super cool. So oxytocin triggers the reward system when you see your wife's face or you're in their presence. But not only that, they also showed them pictures of other women when they had oxytocin going, and it had the exact opposite effect. It suppressed feelings of pleasure. So oxytocin not only promoted, it also protected the bond of their relationship. The author of the study said this, to me it suggests that it may be a way to help prevent the decay that can occur that leads couples to separate it. I just love it when science confirms the truth that God put in his word for us thousands of years ago. God designed it to work this way. And science is just finally catching up. Of course, now you can see why premarital sex and pornography are so damaging. Premarital sex creates this bond, but if you don't actually marry that person, it causes massive emotional trauma and damage to future relationships. And pornography trains you to disconnect so that it's harder or, or that bond actually fails to form in a marriage. God forbids sexual immorality not because sex is bad, but because it's such a powerful force for good, but only when it's used in the right way to join and keep one man and one woman faithful in marriage. Sexual intimacy is one of God's means then of protecting against immorality, growing closer emotionally, and staying faithful in marriage. This is why husbands and wives are required to be intimate. Paul writes, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife her husband. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if a person is struggling with self-control, Paul goes on to say, it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So in marriage, they should come together often. They should only abstain by agreement for a limited time as a safeguard against temptation. What does this mean? It means lack of intimacy exposes your spouse to temptation and it undermines the closeness of your relationship. 
not just physically, but emotionally as well. Now, the principle in this text here is give. Give of yourself, not take for yourself. This is the husband and wife. A husband should give. Wife should give. That's the principle. Give of yourself, not take for yourself. It's about being selfless, about serving your spouse. That principle is what brings joy in your intimacy. It's also what brings understanding and patience. And there are two sinful behaviors then that need to be avoided. One is demanding marital relations and the other is withholding it. Both of these are sinful. Both are rooted in selfishness and a failure to realize that the heart of marriage is self-sacrificing love. First, the husband has no right to be demanding. He has no right to simply take what he wants without regard for his wife. He's called to nourish and cherish her, to love her and serve her sacrificially, as we saw in Ephesians 5. That means there's times that you don't get what you want because you put your wife before yourself. In reality, husbands don't want their wives to come to the marriage bed as a duty. Your husband longs for a willing participant who desires him. He wants you to respond joyfully to his advances, not reluctantly. To withhold your heart or reluctantly participate defeats the purpose. Second, the wife has no right to withhold marital relations. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I would be more open to him if only he would dot, 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 fill in the blank. That's a subtle but a serious error. Marital relations are never to be used as leverage against your spouse. It's a violation of the covenant that you entered into. You might be thinking, well, what if I'm sick? What if I'm tired? What if something else? Of course, there might be circumstances or even short seasons in your life in which marital relations are not practical and not possible. But those, those exceptions aren't really the issue. The issue is your heart. So wives, don't deny your husband without good reason. You're his only well, his only place to satisfy his thirst. This is an opportunity for you to be like Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. Everything you said about these two categories can be flopped for men and women. It applies both directions. The more we understand the depths of God's law, the more grateful we become for the grace of God in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. We've said this Week after week, when we understand the depths of God's law, then we begin to understand the depths of God's grace because we've, we see how far short we fall. Is there hope for a person struggling with lust? Is there hope for a marriage that has grown cold? Yes, there is hope in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, in him, through faith and repentance, there is forgiveness and freedom from sin. Jesus came to set you free from lust. Jesus has the power to heal broken and cold relationships. Through Jesus, you can be free from hard and selfish hearts. In the spirit, we have the power to love our spouses sacrificially, to put their needs before our own And when we do, our marriage becomes this beautiful picture of the gospel, the relationship, this picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Let's pray. God, we we just thank you and praise you for the grace that you have poured out through Jesus Christ. We thank you that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is freedom through Jesus Christ. 
God, we pray that you would give us the power to stay pure, that you would give us courage to confess our sin so that we might for- find forgiveness and find freedom. We pray, Jesus, that you would give us the grace to give ourselves fully and freely, first to you and then to our spouses. Above all, Lord, we, we ask and pray that you would give us the strength to love and serve our spouses sacrificially so that our marriages would reflect Christ's love for his church. We pray, God, that whether we're married or single, God, that we would be pure in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. And all God's people said, amen.